Well, we continue our studies in the attributes of God this morning. Uh, this morning we're going to be considering the majesty and the power of God as we see those things, those attributes of God revealed in the 33rd Psalm. Hear the word of the Lord. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his inheritance. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Almighty God, whose word is a gift of wisdom and insight, give us a spirit now of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of your word and in the knowledge of Christ our Savior. Lord, we humbly ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know the hope we have in you as our majestic and our merciful God. Reveal yourself to us because we can only know you if you give yourself to us to be known. We offer our prayers in the great name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, from time to time, my family drives to Vermont to visit with family there. Uh, my wife is a native Vermonter, 
I call her an old school Vermonter. They're the best sort. And on occasions we have stayed at the farmhouse where she and her large family grew up. And those have been wonderful times. Often we have arrived rather late at night, perhaps around midnight and standing in the front yard out in the country on a chilly night when there's low humidity and no clouds at all, well beyond the reach of any lights, the Milky Way and the stars stand out with such sharp silver clarity. Maybe a shooting star punctuates the moment with some excitement, but the whole effect of that sight just leaves you with a sense of quiet awe. And you've experienced that too at times, haven't you? And there are few things that make us feel so little and so insignificant. I mean, where else are we confronted with such immensity and such distance? And we know there is more to our universe than what immediately meets the eye. The late Cambridge physicist Stephen Hawking in his best-selling book, The A Brief History of Time says, we now know that our galaxy is only one of some hundred thousand million that can be seen using modern telescopes, each galaxy itself containing some hundred thousand million stars. (laughs) Those kind of figures become meaningless to us after a while. We just say the cosmos is immensely huge, and our majestic God created it all. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts, the psalmist says here, that's our God. And our instincts of worship and trust and hope in God are powerfully stimulated by this knowledge of his majesty. So the psalmist exhorts, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous, praise befits the upright. But my friends, this this kind of knowledge is one that we often lack today. I mean, Martin Luther said to the brilliant scholar Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too human. And that is where we struggle too. Naturally, we want a safe God. We want a God that we control, and we don't naturally want the majestic God of the Scriptures. Our God is personal, to be sure, and it's wonderful that He is, but He's not the same kind of God that we are, kind of weak and inadequate. Our God is infinite. He is eternal. He is almighty. And without this knowledge, you and I are just anxious. We are fretful. We are discouraged. But if we know this God, and if we know that His majestic and mighty power is working all together for our good, then we know peace, and we know hope, and, and, we, and we know the joy that we see in this psalm. Knowing the Almighty One is the place of supreme safety. And there are three truths in this psalm that help us enjoy this assurance, that help us know this assurance. And the first is our superior God. The psalmist celebrates the superior majesty and power of God. And these qualities of God 
moves the psalmist to joy and thanksgiving and hope. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, we read. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And, and so that we might share in this joy, this psalm challenges us to consider two things. The psalmist challenges us to consider God's creative word and God's triumphant will. God's creative word. Consider God's creative word. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps into storehouses, everything that exists, from the smallest atomic quark to the brightest quasar. These are all a testimony to God's superior greatness as our creator, our God says through Isaiah, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens who created all of these. He who brings out the starry host one by one and counts, the, calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. God's power is revealed not only in, in what he has made, but also by the way he made it. God made everything out of nothing just by the word of his power. God simply spoke and he brought it all into existence. And this is what makes the cosmos so thrilling and alive. I mean, it doesn't just exist. It hasn't just evolved. Our cosmos was created by the living God. His fingerprints are all over the creation. I mean, it expresses, it expresses God's immensity and power and His beauty and His wisdom. When we study the cosmos and when we examine the processes that order it, we are studying, in effect, God's ways. It's wonderful. We're studying the governing providence of our Creator. I mean, isn't that thrilling? You know, when I was in college, I took an elective course. I was an I was a geology major, but I took an elective course in art history, and I loved it. Uh, I found it fascinating, uh, you know, just to see the character and the thinking and the gifts of particular painters and schools of painters that were reflected in their paintings, uh, paintings of Van Eyck and the Flemish masters of the Renaissance with their explorations in their paintings of atmospheric perspective. I remember that so well. It was fascinating. It was brilliant. And, and those differed tremendously from the paintings of Renoir and the French Impressionists of the 19th century. A landscape with a castle by Rembrandt is very different from a church steeple and a starry night by Van Gogh. But in each case, the artist's character is seen in his work, and similarly, the whole creation is the theater of God's glorious character. It's what makes it so wonderful. It's just as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And verse 4 says in our psalm, the word of the Lord which created it all is upright and faithful. Nothing 
about God's character is crooked. Nothing about it is deceptive. He's not neglectful toward those who are his. And so you can entrust yourself to his superior power because what he has promised he will do for you. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. We read in the 46th Psalm, consider God's creative word and and consider God's triumphant will. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, verses 10 and 11 say. We could put it this way, God's power is total and God's power is inescapable. You can't get beyond the reach of God's superior power wherever you go. The Puritan Stephen Charnock puts it this way. He says that just as the holiness of God is the beauty of his attributes, the power of God is the effective realizing of his attributes. God's power makes God's attributes real in the fabric of our universe and real in our daily lives because God's power is inescapable. Here's how practical this is. I mean, without his power, without God's power, God's mercy, Stephen Charnock says, would be feeble pity and his promises only lovely sentiments, and his threatenings only a mere scarecrow. But you see, as it is, God's power is the effective realizing of all his attributes in your life. God's power means that all of God's attributes reach you, and they exert a governing power over you. Here's how significant it is. Let's suppose for a moment that you lie. Let's suppose that you lie. Well, because God is not only a God of truth, but of power, so that his truth reigns in the universe. You see, your lie puts you in a collision course with the very fabric of this universe. Or again, if you live in impurity, because God is not only a God of uprightness, but of power, so that his uprightness reigns in this universe... Your impurity puts you in a collision course with the fabric of this universe. God's power means that all his attributes are inescapable and exert a governing power over you. Now, many who don't know God try to deny this truth. And they try to suppress it into non-existence, but that's a fool errand. Because just as wheresoever the fish swims, it is in the water, and just as wheresoever the bird flies, it is in the air, too, wheresoever we live, we live in God, Charnock says, or as Paul says to the Athenians, in him we live and move and have our being. But also... God's power is inescapable, verse says. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. It's a mark of great insensibility not to bow our hearts before God's presence from whom we have our being and upon whom our condition depends. There is not a moment when we are without his mercy. There is not a moment when we are without his presence. Child of God, reverence your superior God with joy and thanksgiving. 
And then a second thing that we see here is the saving God. By His saving power, God saves those who cannot save themselves. We read again, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. That's very good news, and here's why. Think about it this way. As you get older, as you get older, the truth of your powerlessness closes in on you more and more, doesn't it? I mean, as you get older, doesn't your powerlessness close in on you? More and more you realize this, this fiction that you based your life on. I don't need God or I don't really need to submit my heart to God because if I work hard enough and if I'm smart enough and if I'm skillful enough, I can take charge. I have the power. Well, eventually, if you have insight and you live long enough, you realize that's just not true. I mean, the reality of this, your powerlessness closes in on you and you see that underneath all of this, you know, underneath this, this struggle, this personal struggle, is this tremendous insecurity. You know, we're, we're, you're afraid because you lack the power to be Lord of your life. And then when something major happens and, and something you thought you needed is taken away or perhaps something that you thought you needed has never been given to you, a wave of fear and terror washes over you. And if you acknowledge the existence of God, you get angry at Him, maybe hate Him. If you don't acknowledge the existence of God, you hate the universe. It's just a meaningless fraud. But you see, underneath this personal struggle is this lust for personal power and this realization, you know what? I don't have it. My friends, you are weak. You are weak. You lack the power to address life's great realities. That's why this psalm is so helpful to us. There's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. His name is John Cheever. Many of you have heard of John Cheever. And he made this insightful statement many years ago. I'm sure many of you have heard it. You can find it on the web. It's well known. But Cheever put it this way. He said, the main emotion of the adult American who has had all the advantages of wealth, education, and culture is Disappointment. Disappointment that you don't have the power that you thought these things would give you. Many years ago, I learned of a well-known meeting at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. I remember learning about this decades ago when I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ but in that meeting, seven men talked about the future of America. These seven men were so wealthy that together they had more money between them than the entire U.S. Treasury had. And yet, 15 years later, three of these men had committed suicide. Two of these men were in prison. Two others were about to die broke and virtually penniless. You see, isn't that a picture of the psalmist's words? that a king is not saved by his great army. Even if you have all the resources in the world, you don't have enough power to save yourself from the powers of life that are closing in on you, the power of death that comes on all people, the power of God's judgment for your sin, 
apart from God's deliverance by his almighty power, you are penniless. You are a pauper in the face of those realities. You are weak. But here's the good news. God is strong. God is strong. God is strong on behalf of those who fear him, those who bow the knee and reverence him for his undeserved power, graciously working all together for our good. Does God in his power have control in your situation right now? Does he? Does he have control in your life right now? He does indeed. We read again in verses 13 through 15, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. You hear the repetition of the word all, all, all in that passage. The Lord sees all. The Lord looks out on all. The Lord fashions the hearts of all. Isn't that fearful? Here again is God's inescapable power at work. If you reverence the Lord in faith right now, if you know the Lord right now by faith, it's because He's fashioned your heart to do so. He has mercifully removed your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh to believe in Him and to trust in Him and bow before His will. But if on the other hand... If you are resisting the Lord currently, if you are trying to live as the Lord of your life, it's because God has fashioned your heart accordingly. He has justly given you up to do what you and your rebellious heart most want to do. And unless you repent, you will reap the fearful consequences of your sin because you see the Lord loves righteousness and justice. He has shown you steadfast love by giving you countless things you consider good. But you consider his love just a little trifle. Oh, my friend, if that's you, turn to the Lord who has power to save. The God who promises to be your shield and fill your heart with joy as you trust in His unfailing love. Here's the good news. While men and women have put themselves in God's place, while men and women have tried to grab God's privileges for themselves, God in His infinite love has put Himself in our place. And in Jesus Christ, He has taken on Himself on the cross the judgment we deserve. That is what God has done to gather us to to himself and to his arms of love. We have grabbed God's privileges. But God became man in Jesus Christ. He became God incarnate and he died on a cross for our sin, for all of our power grab. And you see, a Christian isn't someone who says, oh, you know, I wish I could be a better person, but I'm a sinner. Maybe Jesus will forgive me in some way. A Christian is somebody who begins to realize that the the root of all of his or her problems has been your power grabbing against the Lord for years. A Christian is somebody who looks into the heart of the God through the gospel. The gospel says he died for you. He's committed to you. I don't know, maybe there's somebody here who's living like I once was, believing that God exerts his power in order to make you miserable because he doesn't really care. That's what I used to believe. I mean, no wonder people like that try to play God, vainly believing that somehow they must fend for themselves. But you see, that's the lie of the devil. 
I mean, look at the heart of God revealed in the cross. He gave his beloved son to make you his child, to gather you into his arms of love and to work all according to his steadfast love. My friends, humbly bow yourself before the Lord with adoring love, with tears of gladness, trust in his holy name. Wait patiently on God to accomplish his good and perfect will in your life. Hope in his saving love. The supreme God, the saving God, and finally the sufficient God. Listen to the conclusion of this psalm. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. It's, it's, it's kind of wonderful how this psalm begins you know, with this shout of joy. And then at its conclusion, it, it, it just concludes with this quiet confidence in God's all-sufficiency. There's peace. There's calm. God is sufficient to empower your service. This is difficult. I I mean, to trust in God's all-sufficiency as your help and shield is to believe that He can can use you. Yes, even you, with all your weakness and frailties, He can use you to serve Him and to do His work. You know, it's ironic, but it's when we are weakest that God Himself is strongest. This is a lesson that Paul learned through this thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it was, but, but Paul wanted to have a powerful ministry. He thought that the stronger he was, the more affected he would be in God's service. But God taught him that the opposite is the case. God wanted his apostle to remain weak in the flesh in order to be strong in him. And so the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. I mean, here's the great paradox of Christian life and service. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you in all frankness, I'm having to learn this in new ways. While I'm here serving the Lord with you for a season. But you see, God's power flows through our weakness. And and rather than asking God to make us strong, uh, we should ask God to be strong through our weakness as we trust in His all-sufficiency. A while back, I read about Dr. Clyde McDowell. Uh, Dr. McDowell was the late president of Denver Seminary, and he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. It would claim his life. And so Dr. McDowell wrote these words to his colleagues there at the seminary. He says, it is God's will for me to submit to his sovereignty, accept his plan, and focus simply on a submissive heart. Dr. McDowell wrote, this relinquishing allows me to be released from the messianic burden I sometimes carry, which is to feel responsible to change the world and fix its problems. As a man of faith and in submission to the Lordship of Christ, I must grow in humility, he wrote, and watch the mighty hand of God accomplish his purpose without the false expectation that God must have my help. You see, God is sufficient to empower your service. And then God is sufficient to solve your problems. 
Dr. Philip Reich, and I respect him so much. He is the president of Wheaton College, and he confessed that as a minister of the gospel, he eventually had to accept that he can't solve other people's problems, much less his own. And I trust that many of us have come to that realization as well. I certainly have. So what's our only hope? We need to impress upon our hearts, and we need to impress upon the hearts of others that God can help according to His power. No one is beyond the reach of His inescapable power. No one. So Dr. Riken says, when it comes to your problems, temptation, loneliness, conflict, illness, poverty, persecution, grief, whatever it is, God is all-powerful. He may not solve your problems the way you would like Him to. Probably He won't, as Job learned. But God is not overpowered by your problems. In the words of the psalmist, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Praise be to God for his mercy to sinners. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that we are not beyond the reach of your power and your mercy. Oh, Father, I pray for all of us here today. In view of your mercy at the cross of our Savior, I pray, help us now bow our hearts humbly before you in adoration and love, trusting in your all-sufficiency. For we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.